You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Val di Zoldo. La civetta è la seconda. La civetta è più bella dall'altra parte. Sì. Il versante nord perché c'è la parete. Cioè la sì, sì, sì. Ma il bello è bello, bello però da... venendo su da forno, sì. quando arrivi al FOP sì. e ce l'hai lì davanti e ti manca il fiato. Buonasera Brian. Buonasera Daniel Montanaro. Montanaro, mountain man. And, um, well that was a real mountain man we just heard from. That was one of the gelatieri zoldani the ice cream makers from zoldo and they had set up this wonderful little temporary stand where they were making ice cream or sorbetto close to the finish line some senior gentlemen i would say and so they should be because they have an over century long tradition the gelatieri zoldani there's some fantastic pictures they've got a website ice cream has been made in these parts which they call order online a natural refrigerator because we're in the heart of the dolomites for over 100 years and there's fantastic pictures of them taking their little but actually looks like a cargo bike cargo bike all over italy i think and selling their wonderful ice cream and they were making this pompelmo ice cream today pompelmo grapefruit This is very appropriate and it was so well they just they settled on that flavor because obviously pink grapefruit but also pelmo brian the mountain to our right is the monte pelmo very famous the mountain to our left is the monte civetta the extraordinary dolomite walls um looks like they've been dunked in ice cream i mean it's more than a dusting there's definitely snow but what a panorama this yes, is yes and one of the gelatieri zoldani there you heard him telling me that the pelmont was the most beautiful of the two it's a very imposing sort of as i said wall and i said what about the civetta because the most famous writer from these parts dino puzzati he was in love with the dolomites he was in love with the giro d'italia wrote about the giro d'italia he once said about la civetta it's the most beautiful wall in the Dolomites and the most beautiful in the Alps. It can be compared to no other. A terrifying wall whose architecture will take away the breath of whomever contemplates its summit from the screes below. Well, we're almost in the screes below now. The silvery evening light, it, it looks... I mean, if you can remember what uh, the Guggenheim looks like yes. in Bilbao, it actually in this sort of silvery, glistering mist of the early evening. It's almost taking on a beautiful sort of violet orange color sometimes at this time of the evening. And then um, Brian, well, yeah, he said that the Pelmo is the most beautiful. And I said, what about the Civetta? And he said, well, the Civetta is the most beautiful on the other side of the world. If <laughs> if you go to the other side of the mountain, wow. then it's the most beautiful. So it's like world. a mountain version of Campanalismo. Yes. And the Pelmo, Brian, is quite flat topped, as we can see. And apparently legend goes that God Almighty built it to uh, somewhere to rest on somewhere to have a lie down after constructing after building the other dolomites the famous dolomites like the antelao and the tofane and so on and so forth but we no didn't have to do a podcast eh? yes no need for snoozing today brian because we saw uh, i think one of the best stages of the giro maybe the best stage of the giro With so far for me without a doubt Uh, racing at the front, racing, or racing the break, racing in the GC group. Well, Brian, it started well, too. We had a beautiful start in Oderzo. We were in the Veneto this morning. And, well, today's tale of the Tapper, we're going to get on to that in just a second. There's a preface to it today, 
for reasons that will become clear. Um, we've been helping to construct the legend of Derek G, Israel Premier Tech, serial breakaway artist, um, the Canadian, the loon, the Canada goose, the Ottawa osprey in this Giro d'Italia. And I thought it was about time for another instalment this morning of um, Derek G's words of wisdom. Let's have some of those, shall we? From Oderzo this morning. Derek G, Derek G, Derek G, Derek G, speaking words of wisdom, Derek G. At this year in Italy, you're becoming a cult figure. Uh, we had the Canadian fan at the bus, but everyone seems to have, well, you seem to have captured the imagination. I mean, what's, what's your explanation for it? Uh, I don't get it at all. <laughs> no, I don't get it all, but I mean, I'm not complaining. It's been really, really nice. Um, it's, it's weird reading things about about myself on the internet, um, but so far they've all been really nice things. So, um, no, it, it's been for sure inexplicable to me, but uh, yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs> and just tell us, what's Derek G's life like from Monday? Where do you live? What do you go back to? How do you picture yourself on Monday and Tuesday? Uh, I'm based in Girona, and yeah, there's not, there's not a lot going on. Um, I just ride my bike and yeah, that's really it. It's kind of, it's uh, unfortunately nothing exciting, you know? Ride my bike, look at birds, and wake up and do it again. <laughs> I believe Larry Warbass yesterday allowed himself to give you some career advice, financial advice even. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been great because it's all, it's all pretty new to me um, with, the, with the step up in performance from, from this Giro, so... Yeah, no, it's been really cool just talking with guys in the peloton and, and how to navigate, you know, racing. Uh, Huge offers that are going to come your way. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm. It's been, it's been overwhelming for sure with with people reaching out, but yeah, it's been, it's been good. So Brian, Derek G, still, still perplexed. Slightly disoriented. You lost me for a moment when you was, when you said his name. I was thinking like war, about Warren G. Warren G. Do you remember him? I'm trying to regulate. Yeah, he's trying to regulate the Giro d'Italia. Derek G has been regulating the breakaways. Exactly, exactly. Um, who does that? Who's the Giro d'Italia's Nate Dog? Maybe we'll find out in the tale well, of the tapper. In the conclusion of it, you will. Yes, Brian. It's time. It's that time of the evening for the tale of the tapper. It's time for the tale of the tapper. Thank you, Daniel. So, stage 18 from Oderzo to Val di Soldro, 161 kilometers. 126 riders at the start, which in uh, easy calculations means that 50 riders are out of the race. Seven of those went into the breakaway. One of them was Thibaut Pino, and he got the points. The jersey he now is holding. Uh, he got the points on Pasola Corchetta. He got the points on Pieve di Apalgo. Second there was Derek G. Oh god, I can't get I can't get Warren G and Nate Dog out of my head now. Well, you can thank me later. And the situation was as followed: at the top of the Forcella Cibiana, the, one of the harder climbs of the day, Pino was uh, passing first once again. And at this point, the breakaway was down to six riders with four and a half minutes. With nine kilometers to go, and the, in the finishing part of the stage, Pino started to move, but the Italian champion of Jay Colula, Filippo Sana, was right on his wheel and on the steep uh, road up towards Koi, which was it looked like a very narrow cycling path. They got a gap. In the pink jersey group, uh, as they hit the hard part of the Koi, uh, Sepp Kuss pushed the hard tempo, and that made Joao Almeida struggle. 
Gary Thomas hung on, and so did Eddie Dunbar. Jay Vine was working very hard behind to try and help Almeida back, who actually initially started to look a little bit so-so for the first time in this duo. Rockledge eventually attacked. Gary Thomas followed. Kuss came back while Wein, uh, Jay Vine was fast-forwarding Almeida and Dunbar back. He overcooked the corner on the descent before the last climb, but he actually uh, flung out, uh, and then Almeida and Dunbar heroically kept fighting back. Thomas then did the forcing, realizing that Almeida had, had been missing out on, on that uh, first uh, acceleration, and Almeida dropped Dunbar to try and catch on. Meanwhile, at the front of the race, Daniel, uh, it was still Filippo Sana and Pino, and Sana actually kept his cool and outsprinted uh, Pino to win a huge victory for his team and himself in the national champion's jersey. Uh, so he won the stage here to Valdisoldo. Roglich was behind, pulling with Garen uh, Thomas on his wheel all the way to the line, but Joao Almeida actually limited his losses to a mere 21 seconds. In the GC, today we need to pay attention to that because there were some changes. Joao Almeida dropped one place down. He's now at third. He's 39 seconds behind Garen Thomas' pink jersey. Eddie Dunbar moved up one place, but he's still quite far away from the podium. So in that mix, it's still Garen Thomas leading with 29 seconds. And now, as I said before, 39 seconds down, we see Joao Almeida. Damiano Cunruso dropped down one spot. He's in fifth. He was fourth when the day started. Bono Amirai dropped down four places to 11th. The big jumper of today is obviously Thibaut Pino, and he jumped six places, and he is now in seventh place, 4.43 after the leading Welshman. That, my friend, concludes the tale of the tapper. And excellent it was too, Brian. Brian, stage winner today, Filippo Zana, from a place called Tiene in Vicenza. And that's yeah, I could have told you that just by his accent. In the Provincia di Vicenza. <laughs> Also the hometown, it's not a big town, of the um, of our voiceover artist. Voiceover, is that, uh, to give her her correct name? Um, Silvia Beraldo, a friend of mine from Berlin, who provides the, you know, today. Um, what a in. good job she does at that. She does, and she's from Tiene. But Brian, well, we'll get on to Filippo Zana in just a while. But we had our words of wisdom from... Derek G, I was tempted, uh, you know, I was tempted to break into a bit of it. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Derek G was on the streets, but then it starts to turn slightly, trying to consume. <laughs> we shouldn't really say that, should we? Um, he was trying to get a breakaway win, and boy, does he deserve one on this Giro d'Italia. Um, so, Brian, we are going to hear from Derek G. I mentioned the Monte Civetta earlier, we're in the shadow of the Monte Civetta. It would have been very apt if Eric, Derek G had won today, because Civetta means owl. And we know about his ornithological passions. Um, I asked him about that, as you're about to hear. I was just having a debate with the Italians in the press room, a couple of our friends. There are two words for it, owl, in Italian. And we were trying to decide why there's only one in English. But uh, probably some listeners will be able to set me right on this. Chiretti is smaller. Gufo has these, like, eyebrow things. But they're both essentially So an owl's. Different types of owl, Brian. Got um, it. Different types of owl. Anyway, we'll get to Derek, well, Derek G. G. should know the difference. He should, really. If anyone. He, I'm sure he does. Maybe we'll ask him tomorrow. You're going to hear Derek G. at the finish. And you're also going to hear from a couple of, well, individuals who were in the thick of the action in different ways. You see Vikonen, the Groupama Française des Jeux director sportif, who, well, he was picking up the pieces after another near miss from Thibaut Pinot after the stage and we're going to hear from Sepp Kuss who did another sterling ride for a resurgent now very much back in the race I don't think he was ever really out of the race for the Giro d'Italia but he um, well he certainly 
breathing down Garant Thomas's neck tonight. Was, so that, an, was that an LL Cool J reference? <laughs> so, Garant, yeah, don't call it a comeback. He's never been away. So, Derek G first, except Chris second, actually, and UC Vikanen third. Here they are. I, I was just happy to be up there. My legs have been hurting bad for a couple of days, uh, but, but I think we really took this race, like, we really attacked it hard, and we marked our great legs today, and, and from the first climb, the guys were up there attacking, so I, I think we raced really well, and we did everything we could. I think that was probably the last opportunity, because tomorrow, I think I just want to survive and, and make it to Rome, but yeah, no win, but uh, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> Derek, what did you learn from being in the breakaway the other day in the mountain stage? Also with Pino that time, did you take anything from, from that into today? I definitely, um, especially having a teammate in there, I mean, they attacked us on the descent and, and okay, yeah, that was, that was a good move. We probably had to spend a little extra energy there, but I knew I, I had to try and conserve going into the last climb from that point because I know what, what kind of quality. Ryder Pino is, and, and same with Zana and, and Bargill and Parapaint. Everyone in there was was a really high caliber rider, so I knew uh, Marco and I had our work cut out for us, but uh, we tried. <laughs> had you talked and decided that you were going to go for you or Marco or it was whoever was going to be the strongest? He said, how are your legs? And I said, bad. And I said, how are your legs? And he said, bad. And we said, all right, uh, this will be fun. <laughs> Derek, this, we're being overlooked by a very famous mountain, the Chivetta, which means the owl. I thought it was written in the stars. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wish. Eh? But uh, maybe next year we'll get one. Well, Seb, let's start from the Crosetta climb. We saw, we thought we saw Primoz falling back a little bit in the pack there. I don't know whether it was just circumstances. I mean, did he say that he wasn't feeling good? or? No, no, I think uh, I was just a bit more relaxed moment in the, in the climb. And uh, I was also near him, and we were just kind of in the wheels. And then all of a sudden there was a split, but luckily uh, Kuhn could bring him back. Yeah, I was sleeping a bit too there, but uh, yeah, the, the guys were still in, in good control in front. But uh, I, I heard some other guys on the radio saying, oh, Primoz is uh, suffering. So then uh, maybe some teams accelerated after that. Well, it looked much more like the opposite was true, that he was much more like his normal self today. Just um, well, the way he looked on the bike, he looked powerful. <laughs> He was looking forward to this stage. Uh, the, the climb was really his, his style of climb. I, I could tell he was looking forward to the day. The, the support of the team right from the beginning and yeah, kind of made the calls as the race went on. And I think it turned out that we, we didn't necessarily need to go for the stage because Ineos was, was riding a good tempo already. But either way, if, if, if he could take some time uh, like he did, then, then it was really good. And with Primoz, when he does go on the attack as he did today, just tell us how that works. Is it messaging your ear from him? Is it the car? Are you working to a premeditated plan? How does it work? Yeah, I usually just speak with him briefly, uh, <laughs> kind of going into the climb. But um, yeah, we've ridden together a lot. And I have more or less an idea usually of depending on the, on the climb or depending on the situation, what, what kind of uh, pace is good. That just comes with, with experience riding together. And how much heart do you take from today? I mean, he's right back in it, isn't he? Yeah, right back in it. I mean, um, yeah, the other mountain stage, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like he had a, a bad, bad day. It was just a really hard stage. When, when you miss just a little bit, then 
after after such a hard day, it can compound a little bit. So he's he's right back in it and, and feeling good. Well, you see, um, heartbreak again for Thibaut. He seems to have learned his lesson today that he wasn't impetuous. He didn't try to attack too early, but maybe the problem was the sprint and leading out the sprint. Is that your analysis? Well, I, I, and then to be honest, I didn't see all the images uh, leading to the to the finish, and I didn't I didn't have the TV uh, to, to see the final three four hundred meters. What I heard, it, he tested uh, Zana uh, mid mid climb. I tried to get rid of him, uh, but uh, Zana made another contract back after. So yeah, two pretty strong guys. Then up to the finish like this with this little false flat uh, downhill. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was a close call. <laughs> 20, 30 centimeters missing. Yeah, and I think uh, it was up to up to the to the destiny to to, to finish second now. Eh? We all know that Tebow will be heartbroken, but how do you guys feel in the team that you've been working with him for a long time? And yeah, he keeps coming very very close. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure, we wanted uh, and Tebow wanted it so badly today. He has been working hard since last season. He loved the Giro and Italy, so uh, of course we would like him to to get to the podium today. But uh, but yeah, there's still one day to go, and uh, we need to keep on trying. And uh, he got the blue climbers jersey now, so at least we have something to fight for tomorrow. Eh? Well, and he's also moved up in general classification. I mean, do you? So tomorrow, for example, there might be the option of going in a break again, or defending this place on general classification and maybe even move up which of the well, I guess you have to assess tonight will you yeah we need to see how he feels after today uh, because it was a big effort uh, from all the guys who was in the break and uh, Tipo especially so yeah for sure we will keep on fighting if he feels okay to tomorrow morning but uh, first we need to we need to see how he feels after after today's stage and and, uh, and uh, then talk together and see see for tomorrow he was at the centre of this social media storm. Jonathan Waters talked about his tears and and you know how upset he was the other day. How did you how did you look upon that? <laughs> yeah, I actually see. I saw the screenshots uh, about about the about the case, but uh, I think he we don't even think about it. Uh, so it was just three words and uh, and and that's it. And uh, without any any uh, anything to think about after that. So yeah. Then everybody knows how it is in the social media, uh, so that is uh, that is the case. But it seems to be closed now, and uh, there's nothing to nothing to think about it. So yeah, <laughs> just move on. Shoot, shoot at the du peloton. Cycling podcast, Team Car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of our Giro d'Italia coverage is sponsored by NordVPN, the virtual private network to keep your data safe and secure when you are online, at home or on the move. I've been a NordVPN customer for a long time now, since well before they started advertising in the cycling podcast, and I did so because I wanted to be sure that my connections would be safe and secure when I was travelling for work. I'll be off to the Tour de France in a few weeks. I'll be picking up the Wi-Fi in the press room or in the hotel or even Wi-Fi hotspots, or more often than not, tethering my laptop to my mobile phone, and I want to make sure that those connections are safe and secure, and NordVPN gives me that peace of mind. All of you out there can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash TCP. That's TCP for the cycling podcast. And you'll get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and four additional months for free. It's also completely risk-free because Nord offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if it's not for you, 
then there's no risk. There are lots of other advantages to NordVPN. For a start, you can use it on up to six devices, so you can keep your laptop or your desktop computer, mobile phone, tablet, even your smart TV safe and secure when you're online. It's also the fastest VPN in the world. There's no buffering or lagging while you're trying to watch your favorite series on your streaming service. And when you are traveling, if you're watching a series on your favorite streaming series at home and you find it's not available when you're on holiday, you can switch your region to a virtual location and carry on watching uninterrupted. So that's nordvpn.com TCP. Well, Brian, that answered a few things. Sepka's saying that no, Primoz Roglic was never really in any great difficulty today, although there was some concerns for him earlier in the stage on the Crosetta climb it's just been an air of mystique around his health situation hasn't it yeah and he's doing he's speaking even less than he usually does to the press which doesn't help matters but um well we'll talk more about the general classification in a short while we heard uc vikanen there i get the sense just from observing people at krupama fdj that i don't want to say they're beyond frustration and they're beyond these big sort of emotional outpourings of disappointment but you know the fact is that Thibaut Pino is riding well he's coming close I mean I, I saw some quotes from him after the stage there was a, a sense a hint of the yips about the way he led out the sprint and he said himself he sort of said that he, he may have overthought it or he had a bad feeling when he came, maybe the, I don't know, maybe the, the these towering dolomites over him, he started to feel kind of closed in and um, as though destiny wasn't going to smile upon him yet again. I don't know, Brian. Can um, I take a less poetic go on. stab at the, the predicament of Thibaut Pino? Go on. In my opinion, he's also treating this Giro d'Italia as a sort of decathlon. <laughs> you know? so decathlon the shop or decathlon the Olympic the event? The Olympic <laughs> event. So he wants the climber's jersey. So he's been very busy raking up points for that. He wants a stage win. So mm. he's been chasing that left and right, and, it, and uh, yeah, he's probably been overthinking it. He is now back in GC. If he'd only focused on one of them, and hopefully that wouldn't be the climber's jersey, which, you know, with all respect, I think is not really what he's here for. Maybe he could obtain or get a little bit closer to those two other goals, being the GC and the stage win. Because he, he missed the stage win with very little today. And I, I have a feeling that everything he threw after everything else so far in the race and early on the stage today could compromise. Sometimes, you know, when when you want everything, you end up with nothing. Brian, I'm going to ask you an important question now that neither of us are particularly well placed to answer because neither of us have been professional cyclists. What is most important in the career of a professional rider, particularly, and this pertains to Mark Cavendish as well, when you get into your last year, uh, what will you take away and cherish and look back upon most fondly. Do you know who made me think of this? Cesare Benedetti yesterday. It was actually a conversation he had with our colleagues from Geronimo before he spoke to me. Um, he said that, you know, these are the things going through his home village, which he did talk to us about, and the emotion of that, those are the things that remain more than the results in some cases. So will Thibaut Pino one day think back on these two very near misses in the Dolomites and simply see them as just wonderf as wonderful memories. And he'll think about the racing, he'll think about being in the thick of the battle, and he'll think about, I don't know, maybe the Monte Civetta, maybe the Monte Pelmo, and that is ultimately more important than Short, any of the things you mentioned. Short answer, no. 
Okay, and so let me, let me just make this briefly. I think he could even disregard the general classification if he was to end up eighth or ninth. A right of his class, a right of his mm. brilliant curriculum should should be in it for something else. That one stage win, that one brilliant, huge attack that had him cross the line first in his very last Giro, that's what he's here for. He's not here for creating memories that you and I won't remember. He's here to win a stage at least. That's why he's been hunting it so hard and that's why it's, it's somehow slipped out of his hands. That's my thinking anyways and I, and I those, also feel do like... Do those memories, when you do win, do those memories have a different, they have a different vibrancy, they have a different amplitude, they have a different heft. Well, that's what they bloody race for, isn't it? Well, well yes, yes. But, uh, you know, I mean, because there are a lot of things that come with winning a stage. Aren't there are a lot of moments, there are a lot of things you don't get if you don't win the stage. You don't get the moment on, the, I mean, I'm thinking of the moments. You don't get the moment on the podium. You don't get the moment where you raise your arms. You don't get the moment when you go back to your hotel and you're celebrated by your teammates. So, you know, objectively, there is, there's a lot more. And you give your teammates something yeah. back for all yeah. the work they've done. And also, I think with, you know, he's, it's almost like a... Um, it's been almost like a haunting him that he finished on the podium of the tour and it, it had made it really hard for him to become a GC rider and he's he's refrained from racing in France and he's not particularly happy with that type of pressure but he's always had something to back it up with also for instance in the world say oh well then he won it was some spectacular mountain stages and I really think that's the type of rider he'll be remembered for and actually not so much that early podium including you know also the way he, he won a, a fantastic Tour of Lombardy beating Vincenzo Nibali. So all those things that make him a racer, that make him a winner, that make him a spectacular one at that, is also what I think he should bow out with here in the Giro. Do you know, Brian, I don't think he should bow out. I think he's retiring too early. That's what oh, I think. I, I mean, that's a completely different discussion. I couldn't agree more. I like think, it would be, I think he could easily do... Massive loss. To, uh, also, I mean... This is not to sort of cast any aspersions or cast any doubt on any of the physical problems that he's had over the past three or four years, but he hasn't really been talking about any ailments this year. He hasn't been talking no. about back pain or any... I mean, he might still be feeling those things, but they are put the, to the back of his mind. But, you know, it seemed to me when he announced his retirement early in the year that there was a bit of a subtext of that. I know he talked about the COVID year and how that given him a taste of what he called real life and uh, ordinary life away from professional cycling but I did feel that in the, 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 the sort of backdrop to all of that was well I've had so many problems over the last two or three years that I, I also want to escape from yeah. that kind of torture and we haven't heard too much about that no, this but, year. but even if that's not the case and even if he's I mean he's clearly physically going extremely well there's also a psychological element to all those things and, and if he if it's if it feels strenuous for him to mentally to be a professional bike rider at the highest level with everything else that he wants to do with his life, good for him. Go and do and live that life that you that you want to do instead and enjoy it instead of maybe imagine adding that one more year and that, that he, he would have crashed and burned because he'd had some issues. Then maybe he's more comfortable with like going into the season with a high level and then taking those triumphs, those victories, hopefully uh, one by one in the races where he feels good. Let's talk about the stage winner a little bit, um, Filippo Zana. They've found a bit of a gem, haven't they, your old team? Um, he is a rider, as you said, he hails from, well, close to Vicenza, but he rode as an amateur for 
a team based in the region well where we started today Treviso because he rode for the Trevigiani team as an amateur and he has that in common with uh, Joao Almeida actually because that's where he cut his teeth exactly, as yeah. an amateur rider but he looks well, there was a, uh, you told me, Brian, that a lot of the Italian journalists in the press room were quite sceptical about his ability to beat Pino in a sprint, but he looks very versatile to me. Um, he's yeah. an outstanding climber. He was extremely, I mean, he was fundamental, instrumental in the win of Michael Matthews. Yeah. He made the selection that day. He made it. Yeah. He made, I mean, I know that Matt Peterson was there, but he made Matt Peterson suffer, in my opinion, to the point where he didn't have the final kick. So it's been just been overall super impressive, and there's just something now we talk about this regarding Pino. That's just something so iconic in winning a big Dolomite stage and then doing it in a national champions jersey. I spoke to uh, Brent Copeland a couple of days ago, the general manager of the team, and he said that they were really hoping to be able to repay Sana for the work, not not necessarily with money, but giving him the possibility to go on a breakaway. Because and don't forget, they still have Dunbar in the GC and Dunbar who. He was in a spot of trouble a couple of times today, and he could have he could have for sure have used Sana's help to bridge back when Almeida left him, you know, to try and come on, come back on, Garen Thomas and Roglic. But they gave him that opportunity anyways, and and he he embraced that and, and made something fantastic out of it. I think that that's very much that type of team that they are, and I can say that because I've, I've worked with them for for a number of years, and uh, yeah, that's. They're going to end up with a with a lot more success at this Giro than I actually thought they would. They've had been. a really great yeah. Giro. Matthews winning stage, Zana now winning stage. Dunbar well up on the general classification. And let's not forget uh, Alessandro Marquez, a couple of yes. uh, near misses as well. I, incidentally, I spoke to Alessandro this morning, asked him how he sort of comes out of this Giro, how he feels at the end of it. And um, of course, at the end of last year, he didn't have a contract. It looked as though it, he might have to retire. And he said now that he's very much determined and thinking that he's going to do at least another year. So that's Be good shame news. also. I mean, I know he's he's also older than Pino, but he's just been ridiculously strong at this Giro. If he's at that level, then why should he retire? It's been a gift to this race, I think. Let's wind the clock back to this morning, actually, today. Well within the Cappuccino curfew. It's time for our pausa Cappuccino with Lionel Bernie. And this is uh, a nice preface as well to our talk about the general classification it's past 11 time for my cappuccino break la pausa cappuccino con lionel bernie dopo le 11 buongiorno buongiorno daniel this is a first isn't it our 11 o'clock cappuccino before 11 o'clock just i know i know i could go to the bar i'm in a cafe at the moment in beautiful oderzo where stage, what stage are we on now, Lionel? 18 starting. Uh, it's really gorgeous little provincial sort of Venetian town, or it's in the province of uh, Treviso, the typical clock tower just outside, very characteristic of Venetian towns. And yes, very bustling cafe, as you can hear, and it is, I can confirm, uh, about four minutes inside the cappuccino curfew. Brilliant, final. brilliant. We've made the time cut. That's fantastic news. I was going to say, Daniel, after your palaver yesterday when you were stuck behind the whole race trying to get to the finish, mm. you're off to Palafavera today, which is almost a palaver. Hopefully it will be smoother this afternoon for you. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> we are. Some good names, some lovely, some fantastic. I, I mentioned the toponyms on today's route yesterday. There's some crackers that we didn't mention. Koi, for example. Oh. Olaf Koi is not is not riding the Jira. I also mentioned, I'm, I mention this every year and I failed 
in yesterday's podcast to mention this little place called Venas di Cadore, where the former Grand Duke of the Ku Klux Klan hid for like three years, um, like ten years ago, and became some kind of, I can't remember what he became. It reminds me a lot of the, the Radovan Karadzic story when he sort of became a, what did he become, a botanist or a faith healer and grew a beard and was in hiding for a year or two before, or several months anyway, before he was identified and arrested. Anyway. Me, that's me, that's a diversion from the Giro d'Italia for sure. Yes, sorry. I wanted to sorry. bring it back to the race actually because we're into the real business end now, aren't we? The GC will all be decided over the next three days. And, well, Joao Almeida is really just sitting there, isn't he? Just all the focus is really on the established former Grand Tour champions, Primoz Roglic, Geraint Thomas, and understandably so. But Almeida is just there very quietly in between them. And it just made me think back to when he broke through 2020 in the Giro. He was one of the stars of the race, wasn't he? Led for over two weeks before slipping down at, uh, where was that? That was Laggy de Cancano, wasn't it? I think where Jai Hindley, yep. Wilco Kelderman, Theo Gagan Hart all leapfrogged him. I must say, I did enjoy Brian's revelation that Almeida didn't used to like to breathe through his mouth. It made me think of all those riders in the 90s that didn't need to breathe at all, apparently. But uh, <laughs> let's, not, let's not go there. Um, but no, I think Almeida, when you look at his Grand Tour record so far, he is the model of consistency. Obviously, that breakthrough Giro in 2020, he followed that up in 2021 by finishing sixth, although he was a slightly peripheral figure, wasn't he? Because he was a sort of seven-minute mark on GC. Last year, of course, going very well at this stage of the race, he was lying fourth overall after stage 17, 154 off the lead, and then had to pull out on this very morning with COVID. So that was unfortunate for him. But he did then follow that up with a fifth place at the Vuelta. Again, a little bit of a peripheral figure because he was seven minutes off the pace of Remco Evenepoel. But there's some real pedigree there for a young rider. That consistency will, I think, stand him in very good stead over the next three days. But he's going to need a little bit more than consistency, isn't he? His big dilemma, I don't know how you see it, Daniel, but does he sort of stick and hope that Geraint Thomas falls back? Or does he seize the initiative and try and take time out of both of them? Because, well, it, it could, as it stands at the moment, all be coming down to Saturday's time trial. Well, of course, like, there's the danger that all of this will be horribly irrelevant by the time the podcast goes out this evening. Because he might have lost. I hope this doesn't happen, but he might have lost 20 minutes and he might be out of contention. But any other, any other observations, corrections? Complaints from you, Lionel? Oh, no, no complaints at all. I mean, yesterday's cappuccino break was right at the end of the episode. I'll be surprised if anyone yeah, got Yeah, I'm there. sorry That's about right. that. No, it's fine. It's I'm fine. sorry. I thought it was very, it was a packed episode yesterday. Whoa. And um, yeah, I was doing my best to fit everything in, including the Glogue Trotters and the, the other interaction, an interaction I had with the Canadian fans yesterday. So um, hence... Yeah, you got sort of shuffled to the back of the pack. It's always the way, isn't it? It won't happen again. When, when the race appears to be at its least interesting, as it did for most of yesterday, from what I can gather, I've only really seen the highlights and listened to the podcast, uh, that's when the podcast comes into its own, I think, Daniel, because there was plenty to like about yesterday's episode, not least the emotion and Brian's observation about Arna Marit at the start of the episode, which just reminded me not to take these stages for granted when I'm at the Tour de France. When, when nothing's happening there's always something happening at the grand tours isn't there 
I'm going to leave you, Lionel, on well, this the following note. Um, I'm just surveying the panoply or the, the the vast array of ice cream and flavors of ice cream that they've got available in this cafe, and I'm wondering what you would be ordering now if you were here. They've got liquirizia, which is an an unusual one. I had a used to have an Italian friend, Sandro, who always used to order liquirizia for shock value because no one in Italy, well, not many people in Italy like it. And what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh. They've got they've got some Giro themed flavors as well. They've got mm, pink peach here. Yeah, I'm I kind of quite like a sort of I do quite like a coffee flavored ice cream occasionally. I mean, there's that's probably straying into the cappuccino police territory, isn't it? I'll be handcuffed and led away if I'm not careful. Well, on that on that note, Lionel, it's six minutes past eleven. I think we should end this call right now. <laughs> Have a good day. You also had a. An interesting chat today in the car, didn't you, with Joao, someone who knows Joao Almeida very well. Another Joao. Another Joao. Joao Correra, who is the other agent. It's not the other Joao, they're playing of Joao's. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of those, especially in Portugal. So this is uh, Joao Correa, who's uh, his agent. He's actually the probably the one that's closest to uh, Almeida being Portuguese himself. Oh, that sounded good. Oh, Prosecco. Yeah, finally there's some <laughs> alcohol on this stage. And it's not just Filippo Sana who's like popping all kinds of corks. I think they I think they also saw us looking hopefully in their direction. <laughs> anyway, Brian. <laughs> he was already as Dachier or, or racing in Trevigiani some as you as you said, in the same team as as Filippo Sana. But Joao Correra told me that they uh, got in contact with him when he was changing to the... Uh, ah, look at this, mamma mia. Ma, avete proprio letto i miei occhi? Grazie. They read my eyes. Yes. Thank you. Well, chin, Cheers, Brian. Cheers. Chin, chin. Grazie, grazie. Pausa spumante. <laughs> oh, that's good. So they were working with him when he then changed to Axel Merckx's uh, development project, I should probably call it, the Hagen Bernard's team based in the States. I think that's sort of where he became, I mean, he's always been a massive talent, but I think he became more of a racer at that point. But he actually confirmed, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's more objective, that another one of his agents says that he is actually a, an extremely relaxed guy who doesn't panic. And at least today, I think there's some proof to that, uh, can, can that description. Man, can a man who puts ketchup on rice win the Giro d'Italia? Should he be allowed to win the Giro d'Italia? Well, they w- th- that question came up in the press conference when he uh, when he won the stage, and, uh, uh, and yeah, and he had his little bowl of recovery yeah, rice. Yeah, and he next he just asked the attending media not to mention it to his the dietitian. His way of defending himself once again, and it almost mirrored his way of racing. You know, we often see him never flustered, is he? Yeah, he always sort of he always come back. He never really cracks, and this, he, I mean, today he didn't crack any more than Roglic did on the stage uh, that Almeida won, which keeps the race in balance in the sense that it's still completely open. And what we've seen before with Almeida, apart from the year when he was you know, in the pink jersey for 15 days in, the, in 2020, he, he has actually a really good ability to come back. He, I think he's mentally extremely strong and then he needed to be today because you know, he got dropped by, by the potential mm, people he wants to beat uh, for, the, for the overall win. Brian, that's Almeida dealt with to a certain extent, limited limited his losses extremely well with the outstanding help of Jay Vine. We're going to talk about Garrett Thomas versus Primoz Roglic in a minute. Garrett Thomas's birthday today, he was celebrated with a lovely pink cake on the signing podium this morning in Oderzo. But let's take this opportunity to talk about Garrett Thomas with our old mate, another one of our old mates. We've got so many friends, Brian, um, a few enemies as well. Larry Warbass. 
the Motel Maestro. Subject of the day was Garrett Thomas um, in Ode Editor this morning with Larry. Larenzando, a postcard from Italy with Larry Warbass. Garrett Thomas's birthday. I guess he's a guy who you see around down there on the Cote d'Azur. What are your feelings? thoughts and feelings. Give us a bit of a mood board about Garant Thomas. I really like Garant. He's really cool. He's like a super nice guy. He's always been super friendly since I was like uh, yeah, a neo-pro pretty much. So I lived in Corata and he used to live there as well. I think we even lived in the same apartment building but I just lived like I never knew you, know, you lived later. in Corata. Why did you live in Corata? Uh, because Max Chiandri lived there and uh, when I was on BMC as a neo-pro they said uh, yeah like uh, it's good to live close to Max, like to have a director next to you uh, in case you need help or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, I moved there. Also, Finney lived there. I was close with Finney. So, uh, so yeah, that was kind of like, I may, maybe he came down to train once, G or something that year. And uh, yeah, with Steve Cummings and stuff, we rode together. And then uh, yeah, and then obviously like years later, he's living in Monaco, and uh, I'm was living in Nice. And so yeah, I see him a lot. Uh, Passed him much in training. Uh, I've gone on some rides with him, uh, you know, like there's always like a group in the winter and stuff and so uh, yeah, usually he's there and uh, super friendly guy. Are you supporting anyone in this Giro d'Italia? I mean, with Aurelien, he's, well, he's outside the top 10. You can you can allow yourself to have a favorite. I mean, we all have favorites, right? Even on the team and stuff, like, uh, yeah, we all have been picking our favorites. But yeah, I mean, I would love to see G win. I think it'll be really cool and he's looking pretty good. So. Uh, I hope he can keep it. Just on Max and living in Tuscany, did he teach you anything? He's always very proud of the fact that he taught various people various recipes. He taught calves spaghetti ai pomodorini and you remember getting any culinary advice from Max? I, all I know is that Max definitely didn't cook himself. I mean, whenever we went to his house for dinner, it was like his wife and uh, her mom. They, they, I mean, oh my God, I think I had some of the best meals of my life there, you know? Uh, I mean, it was like 10 course Italian meal. Uh, really beautiful but I can tell you Max definitely didn't get up off the chair so I remember even like uh, Finney and I we went for dinner one night and we just we really wanted to help just like clean up or do something you know and they would literally they refused to let us like stand up from our chairs you know because we were like the guests or whatever so it was kind of funny old school uh, Italian tradition but I'm not sure Max actually cooked so I would be quite uh, surprised if he did. <laughs> Larry last thing let's move from Italy to United States. Yesterday you said to me that you and Sepp were talking about American things. He didn't go into any detail. And I've been thinking about it. What were you talking about? Chevrolets, key lime pie. What were you talking about? Oh, I don't know. No, I don't know if we really were talking about that many American things. I mean, we were just talking about like living in Europe and uh, yeah, I was just asking him, you know, if he spoke English with his girlfriend, things like that, or his wife, if he spoke Catalan kind of things like that. I'm trying to think what else we were talking about. I mean, cliff bars. I gave him a cliff bar because, uh, yeah, on the team, uh, we have like a mix of different nutrition and, uh, you know, a lot of guys in the bunch, they really like the cliff bars. I'm not the biggest fan, but uh, so I'm just like the gifter of cliff bars, you know. I, 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 I dole them out to different guys in the peloton on easy days because I know, uh, yeah, some guys like to change up the nutrition. <laughs> What a fantastic insight into the into the mindset of the American expat living in Europe. Thanks, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no worries. See you in the break shortly. Okay, perfect. Ciao. So, Brian, big thumbs up for Garrett Thomas from Larry Warbass. And a big thumbs up, I would say, for the way Garrett Thomas rode today. Never looked in any great difficulty in spite of that resurgent Primoz Roglic that I mentioned earlier. 
Roglic had the, the, the brilliant service of, of Sipkus today, very much so. And, and Garen Thomas, who obviously had help in the low up in the early kilometers of the last very hard part of the stage, he, he had to rely on him himself. But I, what we saw today also is that at the peak performance, which I think we saw today, they are very, very hard to distinguish performance-wise, Roglic and Garen Thomas. They're really almost at the same level to the second. Until we get to Montelusari uh, on Saturday, because no one really knows. We, we Mountain time trials are not often included in Grand Tours. We don't have a lot of reference points. We certainly don't have a lot of reference points for mountain time trials with climbs this steep. And um, we'll talk a lot more about this tomorrow. But again, we're into... There's also the ghost of La Planche de Béfil for Roglic. Well, exactly. And Matteo Tosato, in fact, the uh, Ineos Grenadiers direct sportif told me the other day that he spent um, part of an evening watching replays of um, the Planche de Belfi on YouTube. Hope, yeah, maybe trying to trying to wish it into reenactment on Montelusari. But we don't really know how they're respectfully going to go. What we have seen, we've seen two very steep climbs where Primoz Roglic has looked very much at home in this Giro d'Italia on the Cappuccini climb on the state of Fossombrone exactly. and on the Koi climb this afternoon. The finish of Trecimi Lavaredo tomorrow is very steep as well, but it's a different stage, isn't it, with multiple long climbs. Completely different preface. Yeah. And, uh, and they'll have today in the legs. But momentum-wise, today was important. I think it turned things well it turned the oil tanker around slightly as far as Primoz Roglic is concerned no more talk people are not thinking about crashes and him recovering from crashes at the end of today's stage they're thinking that of the two he he may be stronger than Thomas at this point in the race but as you said there's absolutely there's a as we said earlier in an earlier episode there's a fettuccine between them isn't there blinking it blinking it's gone and what we also saw today is that it'll be It'll be a, a man-to-man battle. They're, they're all going to run out of domestiques. They're all, even if some of them are amongst the best climbers in the world. So I think tomorrow it will be mano a mano, but there'll be six of, of those money because they, they are the strongest riders in the race. Jay Vine was phenomenal today. Kuss was phenomenal today. And, and for sure, Garen Thomas had the support he, he would expect. Yeah, he had a different kind of support. He had a different kind of support. He had to use the Plus and Aronsman, both of whom were possibly equally strong as Vine and Kuss, but he had to use them in a different exactly. way. Exactly. Brian, um, you also mentioned outstanding ride from Eddie Dunbar again. Well, you did already mention it, uh, that he's part of this. Uh, he's sort of the dinghy that floats but, uh, <laughs> yeah. at the back end of yeah. the big boat, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. But Brian, yesterday... Well, we, we mentioned the anguish of Thibaut Pino. There was no doubt about who demonstrated the most anguish and the most heartrending uh, anguish at the end of yesterday's stage. We heard from him. We, well, you could hear his tears, if that's the thing, if that's possible. Um, Arna Moritz of Antelmarché Wanty Circus. Have I got those in the right order? Probably not. He is the subject of today's Chiacchierata del Giorno, the morning after the heart-shattering evening before and... This took place in Oderzo. La chiacchierata del giorno. The team wag of the day. I mean, a lot of people saw and heard your interviews yesterday and there's a big reaction because, you know, it, it reminded us that every day is a huge day for someone at this Giro d'Italia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. We are sprinters. We suffer actually the whole week with actually just one goal. We look forward to a stage where we can do 
our sprint. So yeah, we have to suffer three, four days in a row before we get actually a chance. In this chance, you need to be so lucky also. So you're with 10 sprinters and everybody wants to win the sprint. Uh, yeah, yesterday I really felt that it was possible to win and then yeah, with 2.50 to go, my chain fell off. And um, yeah, at that moment, I had the feeling that there was my legs were still powerful. I was really relaxed in the wheel of uh, my teammate. Uh, he brought me perfectly in good position without yeah, that I had to make big efforts. So yeah, it was actually whole, really perfect the whole day. And yeah, yesterday I felt like a huge missed chance. Yeah. And I understand that, well, yesterday certainly wasn't the first time you've had bad luck. A few years ago, you were let go by Lotto, is that right? And then last year, I think you had so much bad luck, you even considered giving up sport, is that right? Yeah, yeah, last year was really a year to forget. Um, yeah, I crashed uh, six, seven times in oh, maybe three months. So uh, I was really on the limit then. Um, How does that happen? Yeah, it was just a thing of bad luck. It just kept on coming and um, yeah, I had nothing to say about it because it was never my own mistake. I was just always bad positioned when a crash in front of me happened. And yeah, last year I also did more smaller races where the hectic is yeah, a bit higher and lots of guys want to prove them and they put their bikes in, in narrow gaps where there are no gaps and then they crash. And here you see the difference, really, um, the guys are more, how do you say, um, uh, full wasm in English. More adult, like we say. And um, yeah, that's the difference here. I'm also more confident on the bike now again. I feel good on the bike. That does a lot. And I understand you're good friends with Remco Evenepoel. How, how did that begin? started in 2017 or 18, I guess. Um, he was the football player with Anderlecht. And uh, we were doing uh, district championships in uh, time trial. And he sent me a uh, message before the race. Ah, it's my first race. What should I look to it? And uh, so yeah, I gave him some advice. And uh, I won the district championship in uh, the time trial. And he got sixth or seventh with a normal bike. And at that moment, I realized uh, this guy has some potential. Because um, yeah, he was only one minute behind on a normal bike. So that was actually quite impressive already. Then we trained uh, also together towards Nokere uh, Kurse because I won it twice with the juniors. He wanted to, he had already won some, some races and he said, ah, I want to do the recon with you uh, from Nokere Kurse because you won it already twice. So we did the recon, we ate some uh, pasta together uh, at my home, took shower at home. And uh, my dad said to me, uh, imagine a world champion uh, stood in my shower and <laughs> imagine this and yeah now a few years later uh, Remco became world champion so it's actually a funny story so uh, and now we, we keep in contact uh, really a lot so uh, yeah it's nice have you spoken to him the last few days after he left I spoke to him a bit but then uh, yeah I just uh, focused on my own Giro but um, yeah, now yesterday I heard him, he uh, sent me a message. Yesterday also they asked me, what do you think about Remco that he gave up? Uh, and I gave him uh, some nice words and he said, uh, really, thank you mate uh, for these nice words and uh, yeah. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. 
Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. Go to scienceinsport.com to shop the full range. They've got everything you need for before, during and after your ride. My particular favourites are the beta fuel gels and the drink and also the Go energy and caffeine gels. Uh, But you'll have your favourites too and you can browse the shop online and pick yours. Now, one of the key phases of any race, especially the Grand Tours, is the feed zone. It's where the riders pick up fresh supplies in a musette, the cotton bag that will have a bidon, probably filled to the brim with beta fuel and some new energy gels, uh, energy bakes and bars, and maybe even some beta chews and perhaps some real food too. Well, the feed zone can also be quite a hazardous part of the race. I asked Ben Swift of the Ineos Grenadiers what he thinks when the feed zone is approaching. The feed zone, you know, it's like it's a little bit of sacred ground, really. And it's unwritten rules that you don't everybody needs to get the feed and stuff like that. You don't depends if the race is on and if it crosswinds. There's been obviously times when we've gone through the feed zone like full gas and nobody takes a feed. So. But you can see when that's happening, you know, like generally nobody's even going to attempt to it. Uh, but if it is just a normal run-of-the-mill race, uh, part of the race, let's say, you try and just give yourselves a bit of space looking around and stuff. Our Swannies or our carers rather are really good at trying to pick points where they're trying to be a little bit isolated in that feed zone. So they they know to give us space as well. And then we spread out as a as a team a little bit and take it on you know, slow down a little bit, you know, it's better to be, to slow down and lose a couple of positions and make sure you get everything that you need. And then, yeah, at times I have had to take two, depends what the situation is and stuff like that, but you just get ready, you know, it's it's a heavier, it's heavier grab, but the, the carers know that I'll be taking two at that time and uh, they're ready for it. Fascinating to hear from Arnhem Marit there about, well, his friendship with Remco Evenepoel, among other things. He made it safely in today, 111th place, 36 minutes, 38 seconds down. Last rider today, Charlie Quarterman, Team Coratec Salutalia, 39-29. Mark Cavendish also made it safely in. But Brian, well, we, we all remember Arna Maritz's tears last night. No tears for us. Uh, dinner well that we were quite happy with um with where we ended up after the stage yesterday for our dinner and it's about that time of the day again when la tappa di domani e la cena di ieri tomorrow's stage yesterday's dinner well then we had a delightful dinner yesterday night at a really uh, sort of like a far off kind of country type of restaurant in the middle of the flatlands overlooking the ducks. It was behind an outlet village. Yeah, Ryan. yeah. I was, I was trying to forget that. It was. I had a lovely asparagus soup. We had a. Both of us had a, a nice you risotto. Went crazy on the asparagus. You went double asparagus to rescue us, to bring us back down to down from the heights that um, we're being overlooked by the Monte Civetta, Monte Palmo, as we've already established. Who could do that? Ciro Scognamiglio. Yes, and you can say I have only a T-shirt, dear listeners, even if... Uh, well, you're also we wearing pants. Mont- yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so also, if uh, you know, the landscape are not my favorite, the victory has been the victory of an Italian champion. So also my victory in a certain way. Uh, Ciro, how good is this rider, Filippo Zana? I don't think it can be considered 
now a champion and I don't see him as uh, the big really next thing of the Italian cycling but at the same time I think that he's a really good climber from this year uh, he jumped in world tour with Jake Alula and uh, his coach now is Marco Pinotti is one of the best uh, technician coach uh, in Italy I think he can uh, improve also uh, a little bit more than today he can do more things not not a champion as I told you but a good rider Ciro right. can, can you do me a favor why not? Found for more, grazie. Si, so, not? Ciro, um, sure. my job at this point of the podcast is to tell about the stage tomorrow. Ah. Could you do that for me, please? Mm, when I look uh, at this stage... Uh, 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 horror show for you, Ciro. No, it's like I, your worst nightmare. No, but uh, I can uh, certainly assure one of the worst days in my career uh, was 11 years ago, month of June. Uh, Liquigas uh, training camp in Passo San Pellegrino uh, with the Basso in Nibali. They were preparing the Tour de France, the famous Tour de France in which Nibali arrived the third after Wiggins and Froome. And I spent one day with them uh, in these mountains, exactly the same, you know? It's just about the best uh, preview of the stage tomorrow I've ever had. Yes, exactly, because I remember Campolongo, Campolongo, Valparola, Giao and Passo Tre Croci. The only thing that we didn't do that day was the finish line of tomorrow of the stage 19 Tre Cime di Lavaredo. But all the other mountains, they on the bike, me in the car with the coach Paolo Slongo, dear listener, for six hours, me in the car following me a training in the mountains of Passo in Nibali. What can I say more? Well, thank you very much, Giro. And for that, I will give you the headline uh, for your paper tomorrow in case he wins. João Almeida. João Almeida. Oh, there we go. Why not? What a could genius. Be, We're could in the presence be really of a genius. nice idea. Thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome. Ciro, uh, great to have you as always. Um, talking of great writers, Ciro, of course, great writer. Great writer, Dino Buzzati, who we've talked about, we talked about already in the podcast. We talk about uh, a lot, don't we? Um, from Belluno, love these mountains. The Jao is overlooked by the Croda del Lago. And that was the last mountain that Dino Buzzati ever climbed, walked up it, not on bike. Um, and his ashes are scattered there. I was going to say, look out for that tomorrow. No need. <laughs> You're not going to no see them. No. You're not going to see them. Um, it's a bit of a, a wind blowing up here too. Yes. It'll be gone by now. Brian, on that slightly macabre note, let's um, well, let's go to the stage start in Longarone. And this is a name that is well known to people in Italy, students of Italian history. And, well, every Italian knows what happened in the 1960s in Longarone. A tragic event happened there. And well, let's hear more about that from our good friend, uh, head of Italian studies at the University of Bristol, author of several acclaimed books, including Pedalare, Pedalare, John Foote. He'll tell us about the dam of the Vaillant. I mean, that would be a beautiful stage, I'm sure, because it's very spectacular around there. And part of that's part of the reason why it's so famous, because in the 50s and 60s, Italy doesn't really have coal. It doesn't have raw materials for energy. It doesn't have oil. Um, and what they what they did have was a lot of water, and and it's sort of white coal it was known as. So they, they, you know, building dams, making energy from water was something around since the nineteenth century. You can see them all over northern Italy, around Milan. It's kind of made the industrial revolution, and also in Terni, where where um, where the Giro is going as well, is a place that was built on the fact that it had waterfalls and 
and it made become an industrial town. Vaillant was a place where they, uh, one of the big uh, energy companies thought they could build a, a dam in a very narrow gorge and, and make a lot of money from, from generating electricity. And it's a scandalous story because they started to build this dam and fill it with water. And there was a lot of protest from all the people around were peasants. There were a lot of protests, a lot of people rehoused and chucked out of their houses. And there, all the geologists were saying, this is the wrong place. There's going to be a landslide. You know, you can't build it here. But they just ignored all the warnings and they filled the water almost up to the top. And the landslide happened. So half the mountain fell into one night in 1963. Half the land, the mountain fell into the water. A large amount of water sort of jumped over the dam. The dam is still there. Jumped over the dam, rushed down to the village and just completely destroyed an entire town. 2,000, more than 2,000 people killed overnight. Not just killed, obliterated. It was like a moonscape. I mean, some of the journalists went to see it and did some incredible... Dino Buzzati, who we've talked about before, who's written on the Jira, he went there and it was from round there, Belluno, and he wrote this extraordinary reportage from Vaillant. So it was very symbolic as well. It was the kind of the downside of the economic miracle, mm. the rush to progress, corners being cut, corruption. There was a very long court case to try and get compensation because the entire villages at the top of the hill were also swept away and everyone died or most of their houses were lost. These two places called Erto and Castle, I think you can visit them. And there was a great long political campaign to to get justice. And then the kind of final part of the story is that in, and this had been forgotten really by many people, but this great sort of experimental actor and writer called Marco Paolini in the late 80s, did this show up on the Vaillant. He did it live on TV from the dam. And he t- it was called Il Reconto de Vaillant, the story of Vaillant. And, he, and it, it was amazing. It got like millions of people were watching this thing live. And it's a one-man show about Vaillant, but it's a very powerful story using the voices of people who are involved in the tragedy. And it gained this incredible audience of 10 people. It went on to like one o'clock in the morning. I remember watching it. And it re, re, reignited the story, and lots have been has been much more talked about since then. So it's an amazing place to visit. You, you can see there's no more water in the dam. The dam is still there, well built dam, but not in the right place. And mm. uh, and there's a cemetery with two thousand people who died on the same day, mm. which is also amazing. Tomorrow, what is going to happen in the race, Brian? We don't think the break is going to go to the finish because it's uphill all the way, isn't it? Well, from the start. It's the mother of all general classification stages, at least for this Giro. And I think we will also see isolated team captains potentially after the Jiao, as I think that's really where it's gonna the action is going to start. It's a very hard stage. I think two riders, maybe potentially even one, will come out tomorrow as... Uh, as the outright as the winner of the Giro, I, I mean, I'm hoping it at least. I have nothing against the mountain time trial on Saturday. That's going to be a brilliant stage. But I think tomorrow, the Giro winner will emerge. Trecima di Lavaredo, if I'm not mistaken, debuted premiered in the Giro d'Italia 1967, and that day it was a fiasco, a debacle, because almost all Polemica. of the riders, yes, were pushed to the finish, and Vincenzo Torriani, the race director, was incandescent, and so much so that he was neutralised, sort of cancelled 
the the result. It was um, it was null and void that stage. He was also known as being a little boring. Yeah, he was a bit of he was a bit of a firebrand. He was a bit of a firebrand. But hopefully that doesn't happen tomorrow. Although I hope we do see plenty of T four Z. I've got bad memories of the Trecimiri Lavaredo and the Rifugio Alonso where the press room will be and where the finish line will be because I had terrible, terrible food poisoning there about 20 years ago and was um, yeah was vomiting for about two days straight. On Brian, that note. On that note, um, let's go and get dinner. Um, we'll be back tomorrow from the Rifugio Aronso. Um, hopefully the drinking water there um, has either improved or I'll be wise enough to stay away from it. Brian, buonasera. Good night and thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burnett.